I've had in my head all day that it is, uh, it is the seventh. I've convinced myself it's the seventh. Yeah, that look is right. Um, the look you're giving us right now. Yeah, I I had a lovely phone call from Andrew's sister earlier, and I I was having a drink with dinner while we talked. And it was such a hilarious conversation, I decided to have a second drink. And then after we hung up, Andrew was like, you know, we've got this thing tonight. And so this is the most I've had to drink on a Sunday night in, like, <laughs> since grad school. <laughs> so if I have a giggle fit, yes. <laughs> I may this have is, a giggle fit. <laughs> this is what I had hoped these would be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so man. let's talk about some nerdy music. Let's talk about some nerdy music. Let, let's do it. <laughs> God, I wish I was drinking. Should should we get our traditional question out of the way? Yeah, but I really, I really wish I was drinking right now. I mean, I'm drinking something. It's just not alcoholic. Anyway, it, well, it, it is Monday for you, right? Yeah, it's Monday morning. Yeah. Yeah. And and I uh and I have to proctor an exam this afternoon. Uh, uh what's the exam? Uh it's I I'm proctoring for another colleague who who had a like administration meeting, so it's uh Jeez, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's something on the historical side. Cuz um, she's a musicologist, <laughs> but um, it's either you maybe you should either, be drinking. <laughs> you know, it would probably make that two hours of just standing there, making sure they're not cheating, a little go a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Yep. But um, yeah, it's either music, uh, music history one, or it could be a like freshman seminar something. I don't know. <laughs> Well, have fun. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't really matter what it is, because either way, I'm going to be doing the same thing. That's true. Walking around aimlessly, hovering over people's shoulders, making them feel uncomfortable. You should set up some kind of <laughs> algorithm, speaking of nerdy, I mean, to keep yourself entertained. Like, <laughs> maybe you can progress in some kind of Fibonacci way. That would be That would be exciting. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, Jamie, I can already tell you're going to be great. Yeah. So (laughs) So I'm drinking ginger beer. (laughs) Okay, good. It is is not the British kind that's like 12%. It's it's about half of that, (laughs) but it's still very good. But this is not the ginger apple ale. Oh, this is not. No, I have no idea. Where he got that? We're just gonna we're just gonna put that out there. I okay. didn't clean the fridge today, so he would have no possibility of finding it. <laughs> I I think I drank the last one during our last over drinks. There was still You're, some pretty weird stuff in the fridge. <laughs> You're describing it like he's just foraging for food, like a bear or something. I uh, just go in there and. Uh, uh, drink. Uh. Yeah, that's kind of what happens. First uh, one, first one that I get. Yeah, that's kind of what happens when when there's not a, a plan for like food or or beverages. <laughs> In fact, a couple of years ago, I seem to recall I got really busy with work for like five months straight, and I knew it was going to be the case. And um, and I looked at right at him and said, "If you're hungry, fix it." 
Like there, I know there's, <laughs> I know there's food in the fridge. If there's not food in the fridge, you can call somewhere and it will be delivered to the door. <laughs> um, it was, it was, yeah, it was, I was working like 70 hours a week. So I was a little insane. And, and, uh, and he has made me cry before with his need for food. Like. <laughs> not, not on purpose. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> not on purpose, but um, but yeah, no, there was definitely a night where he was starving and I was just, I was exhausted. He was naming all the food he wanted to eat and I knew how much time it was going to take to cook it all. And I was just like, you're so exhausting to keep fed. <laughs> it was a, it was a thing. So yeah, he does. He does forage in a bear-like manner uh, when he's looking for <laughs> anything in the fridge. And I did hear about the uh, the unfortunate drink he had last time. It's a little better this it was, time. Uh, yeah. It's, it's so more what than are, a little better. What are you drinking this time? Are you drinking the same thing? N- uh, no. No, no, no. Uh, I, I've gone for an oatmeal stout, which is delicious. Got it. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not such a fan of stouts and darker beer. Um, they're hit or miss for me, personally. This one is doing the trick. So Yeah. Yeah, although I am just I am coming off the ginger apple ale, so <laughs> anything is a step in the right direction. I think, Rob. That's right. We've, we've been snowed in for like three days, so we're lucky that there's anything. Oh, left. seriously? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We had just like a lake effect storm squad over our house for for three days straight. It's a little. It's a little terrifying. The windows are snowed over. Uh, they're getting close, yeah. 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 <laughs> we had kids knock on the door at like 10 o'clock last night and ask if we wanted our our, our driveway shoveled. I was like, no, no. I'll get to it. What is... I'll, get, I'll get to it. Art before shoveling. Art before shoveling, people. <laughs> what does like... that feel like, by the way? You you have you have like <laughs> kids coming up to your house <laughs> as you know, you know, like you're not old. <laughs> <laughs> And, no, but we're definitely oh, um, lazy. Um, <laughs> we will, we hello, sir. At the end of a snowstorm. <laughs> hello, sir. Can uh, can I offer uh, snow snow shovel assistance for how much would that go for it at this point? I didn't even ask. I told him I had a husband for that. <laughs> <laughs> and and there it is. There it if, is. If he makes me cry over food, I think it's, that's fair. That's <laughs> all fair. <laughs> Send him out into the cold. All right, well, uh, I'm, since, of course, it is 9.30 in the morning for me, and I was this close, I'm serious, I was this close to bringing in a flask and putting putting whiskey in my in my teacup instead, but, um, but I'm drinking a uh, green tea from, from Taiwan, one of my students Ooh. gave me, so it's very good. You know, now, I know internet might be a thing. Um, which is one of the reasons why morning is better for you. But just one of these times, we should try an ungodly early morning for us and an evening for you just to see what you would be drinking. And I'll just get messed up. <laughs> By yourself. <laughs> Can we add? Hey, I'm, I'm fine with that. <laughs> I, know, I know that's the mark of an alcoholic, but it's also the mark of a father of two <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> gotta get it in whenever you can <laughs> okay so we should probably talk about music at some point yeah i think um, so <laughs> <laughs> so uh this today we're we're talking about um a bassoon concerto 
That was your pick, right, Jamie? Yes, it was. All right, so <laughs> why don't you tell us about it and why you why you love it? Okay. Give me two seconds here. <coughs> Sorry. Just going to die right, right in front we're of you. We're leaving that in. Yeah, we're, we're keeping it in. <laughs> we are not. <laughs> um, okay, so this concerto um, is is fairly new. Um, I have been learning the study piece for it, which he wrote a couple years ago called Woodlands. And I had no idea that he was working towards uh, a concerto, but it came out a couple months ago on CD and I'm still waiting to get a hold of the, the actual score and parts. Um, but this is Sebastian Fagerlund's uh, Mana Concerto for Bassoon. And uh, I immediately told Andrew, we need to do an Overdrinks podcast for this because I feel so strongly that this is going to be an amazing bassoon concerto coming up um, and that a lot of people are going to be playing, at least I hope so. And it also, um, with this single CD, kind of doubles the number of concertos that include bassoon multiphonics. That exist in the world, <laughs> um, or nearly doubles. There were three um, that had been written when I published my book a few years ago, and I even think the reviewer said something along the lines of, "I, I trust her that she did her research, but really, we can't only have three concerti with with multiphonics in them." But can can anybody tell me anymore? <laughs> and and the response has basically been no. I think. Um, I haven't heard of any other ones. I think Dai Fujikura uh, may mm. have written one in the past year or so. I'm not sure that it's um, completely out for publication or recorded yet. But um, but yeah, I think I think we've doubled it in, in the past three years. Nice. Um, but with this, this uh, CD that uh, I believe his name is pronounced Bram von Sambik mm. mm-hmm. uh, has put out, you know, he's got... The Kalaviaho Bassoon Concerto, mm-hmm. which was a, uh, which was also started as a solo, his solo five or solo V. I'm pretty sure it's solo five, mm. um, which I have a handwritten score for. It was before they even did the notation publication of it. Um, Bam! Yeah, it's uh, illegible. It's <laughs> <laughs> Most well, handwritten scores are illegible. It's, it's so I haven't performed it yet, actually, because yeah. I, I just can't slog through it. Um, but I found out this summer at IDRS that they have published a notated version now. Yep. So so this CD that um, Brahm has come out with has the two study pieces that each of the composers wrote in order to prepare for the two concerti. And, um, and as much as I love Kalevi Aho, I hadn't really heard that much of Sebastian Fagerlund's music before I heard Woodlands, and I completely fell in love with it. I think he writes incredibly gestural music. The piece feels connected from beginning to end, which is hard to do with a solo instrument for that length of time. How long is it? it? It's about 22 minutes in length, I think. No, that's the concerto I think he's asking about. Oh, sorry, the solo you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. The solo is... I think it's about 10 minutes. Okay. That's, I mean, still, that's a um, long, long time for a solo. It is. Um, and then he came out with a concerto, and I was kind of blown away when I heard the opening chords. The muted brass are fantastic, and and the way he orchestrates some of the multiphonics into string sounds. I was just like, okay, I really want to talk to Rob, 
and Andrew about this because Andrew was obviously the editor on my book and Rob is maybe at, in the top five fans of the book, like <laughs> promoters of bassoon multiphonics in the world. Top five. <laughs> top five. That's right. Um, so, so yeah, I thought this would be a fun evening. Yeah. Um, the slash one of the slash morning. slash morning, one of the parts you were talking, I, I think you're referencing is the the multiphonic right before the cadenza, yeah. where mm. it just kind of blooms into the orchestra. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. my God. When that happened, I was like, oh, yes, <laughs> this is how you should do it. Yeah. And actually, I found I, I, I kind of thought that in many ways. A lot of the extended techniques that he did write for bassoon, they he they weren't he didn't treat them like so many other composers treat them, where they're just like little one off and mm-hmm. you know uh, they they really had no meaning. So the the three things that really st- stuck out to me for the bassoon writing uh, was first the multiphonics, second the um, uh, the I mean, glisses are just like, you know, so important to this piece. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you as a bassoon player, you know, how difficult, easy are some of those glisses? <laughs> so this has actually inspired a new level of, of investigation for me because he has provided some fingerings that I never would have thought of um, to gliss from notes that are not standard glissando notes. Typically, I, I tell students and student composers, professional composers, anyone who will listen, basically, that if you want a glissando on the bassoon, you need to use the open tone holes. Right. And he completely breaks that rule, but he does it only using keys that there are shortcuts for. Um, and so I, I have to start investigating an entirely different level of glissandi and a lot of them aren't huge. Either. The open tone hole idea is, you know, is similar to clarinet, though, right? Yes. And flute. Yeah. So you're just like half holing and then three quarter yeah. holing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. But, but he's... Even, on, even on those instruments, though, glissing down is usually more problematic. I mean, ascending yeah. glissandi are, 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 I mean, not to say that uh, they're fairly easy. I mean, they're fairly easy to execute once you understand, you know, what you're doing with your throat aperture and, and uh, how you're voicing things. Um, but descending glissandi take a bit more finesse. And, right. and the fact that, especially in this concerto uh, for bassoon, there's so many descending glissandi that they're not they're not sure they're not just pitch bends i mean it's substantial range <laughs> that's being yeah. bent <laughs> i mean most of them are like at least a th- at least a minor third mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah you know i thought i thought that was really i mean it was striking if if nothing else and gliss is really i mean that's like the whole I don't want to say that's the whole piece, but I mean, he's the the whole piece is a gliss is a big part of the piece at many structural levels. Yes. Yeah. I'll say that. Yeah. So that was kind of interesting. Um, And then finally, the the last little thing, um, I don't know what you call it, but it's uh, it's like really staccato. It's in 
it's in the cadenza where he starts like bop, 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 you know, but it's almost yeah. pitchless. What do you call that? Um, okay, so there's two ta- two terms for that. Um, and when I was in high school, we called that helicopter tonguing. Okay. Because if you play the lowest note on the bassoon and you just articulate really quickly without producing a tone, it sounds a little bit like helicopter blades, this little... Right. Um, Schwantner used it though, and he called it bassoon pizzicato. And so those are the. That's that's fair. I mean, you have you have flute pizzicato and right. You know, um, it can be done with or without the reed. He uses it with the reed for this one because he kind of bounces right into phrases. Um, yeah, which was really effective. But um, I think as a composer, thinking of this technique, I like to remind people. <laughs> That this was miked, and it has to be in order for that to be really present. Notice that, like, he uses that, and then the bass clarinet, and there were a series of other instruments that that same type of motive um, got passed around using the same little rhythm. But they were clear as day. If you did the same thing in an orchestra hall, it would have to be, like, Severance Hall for it to be audible, unless there was a microphone. Uh-huh. But typically, I use it in electronic pieces when the bassoon is definitely going to be miked. Ah, uh, okay, that's good. that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Because I thought, like, I usually have problems with cadenzas because I find them to be masturbatory. <laughs> and I think, I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, usually it's just like, okay, go on, go go show us that you can play. But does it really mean anything to the greater? like the the greater goal of the piece and i felt like when he threw that in i mean he he was kind of playing with different ideas from from earlier in the piece in the cadenza but when when he threw that in it was like okay all right uh, let's see where this goes if you don't do anything with this i'm going to be really disappointed and then he did something with it yeah so so it's like I'll, every single time he uses something extended on the bassoon he really he doesn't let it go too soon and he it's not just a one-off he really does something interesting with it which i definitely appreciated
Yeah, and you know, it's interesting you bring up the cadenza issue. Um, is Do you feel in part that's because we've sort of gotten away from what the cadenza traditionally meant, you know, where, where a performer would showcase their own skill and in some ways compositional craft as they improvise on the materials that they'd been playing in the concerto proper. And now it's more or less the composer, they write out a concerto for the instrumentalist in most cases. Um, and so you mean they write out a cadenza. That's what I, that's what I mean. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so they write out a, a cadenza in most cases for the instrumentalist to play, and it's it's lost that maybe original quality, that improvisatory nature. Is would that be better for you, the improvisation, or is that still self gratifying? It still feels. I mean, yeah. I think I think I'd still have I still have problems with it. Mm. I I guess I just. I'm not a big fan of solo, like just solo pieces. Okay. You know, and I mean, a cadenza is the ultimate just solo piece. Yeah. You know, you'd probably it's like, love oh, wait, way. oh, wait, you guys shut up. I'm going to go for a while, you know, like <laughs> never mind the 80 people behind me. Like, <laughs> you'd probably love the way my first bassoon teacher taught me cadenzas then is that they must be done in one breath. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Short, sweet, get out of here. It's like, yeah. you can show off, but you only get a breath to do it. And therefore, it was like, you know, I was in high school, so it was like six measures. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it. I, I was actually just having a conversation with one of my, um, uh, one the, the bass player that uh, played in my high school rock band, who has gone on to just be just this wicked, wickedly talented bass player. Um, he played in the Marine Band for a while, and then he's he's gigged with a lot of people, and he's just really good. And we were we always like sh- try, you know, we connect every once in a while, and we try to share bands that we're listening to for for the other one. And he's always kind of gravitating towards these bands where the instrumentalists are just amazing. You know, they can play so many notes in so many seconds, and you hmm. know, it's all. And it it used to be like that. Now he's kind of gravitating toward more like tasty stuff. Like he just gave me a band to listen to that I absolutely love called Hiatus Coyote. Um, (laughs) And they're from Australia. And each one of them is a great instrumentalist in their own right. But they, the way they fit everything together, it doesn't seem like it's too showy. But then again, I just, I just like listened to this band called, uh, Dirty Loops. Yeah. And they're they're just a trio and we were talking and he was like, "Yeah, I mean they're good and everything, but all their solos are rehearsed and it's all, you know, it's it just lacks a lot of depth or meaning and it's and I find the same way. It's like it's just like, "Okay, you can play your instrument. I get it. Now do something interesting with it. Mm. Don't just like you know, it's like I don't care." So, <laughs> so it's, yeah, I mean, I have, I have problems with solos. I want, I, I like the, uh, the idea of a group doing something together, mm. you know, which is, you know, actually I was thinking about this. It's probably why I don't write too much tape music because it's ah, like the composer solo. 
Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. And it's like this it's like the most selfish thing you can write. You know? I love tape music, but at the same time it's like I don't want to write it because it's like, who is this for? You know? All yeah. it's for is to like get into Seamus or ICMC or something, you know. <laughs> been there, been there, done that. No, I get it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Huh. So anyway, the part uh one part that I that I really liked was um well, I don't know if I liked it. It was just interesting to me. And I shouldn't say interesting because that's a terrible word for composers. But it really is. It struck it, it struck me. I'll there say you that. Go. Okay. Um the middle, if you can call it a middle, I th- I felt like there were kind of four parts to this. You know? Four big parts. Okay. Is that fair? Yeah, I think I, so. I think that yeah, I think that's fair to say. And thank God it it wasn't just ABA. Um <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, but you're in a concerto, you're naturally going to have something slower. So the slower stuff, like the kind of shepherd tony middle thing, mm-hmm. you know. It was really nice and it had like gorgeous uh solo writing over top of that constantly like moving up accompaniment. But that's that's where it kind of struck me. It was like, it's always moving, but it's never going anywhere. Mm. You know, as the shepherd tone does. Yeah, you know, that's actually the the one part of the concerto that I actually started to space out a little bit. Um, yeah. Where, where, especially for preparing this podcast, I, I had to get, you know, the, the angel on my shoulder reminding me to stay focused and check in, right? Um, <laughs> I think, honestly, for the first... Probably six minutes. I'm I'm pretty captivated by everything that's going on, yeah. um, and it's I think it's within that uh, you know seven to eleven minute area I think where you're talking about that slow section when it when it happens, um, and then we get some multiphonic things that happen in in minute twelve and thirteen that are just absolutely breathtaking. So I'm I'm certainly on the edge of my seat again. Pulls you right back out yeah. of it. Yeah. And and yeah. so I yeah and and when Jamie says that it kind of makes me um, I wonder if that's maybe part of the trajectory of this whole thing to give us that that just unending slowness. Uh, and it's not even all that slow, really, because as you're saying, the, the melody no. over top is moving, it is doing things, but it's it's not really going anywhere. We're still in this area of music, mm-hmm. of this soundscape. Um, and it just, I don't know, for me, it starts to, to, to um, we tell our students about these two thresholds, the threshold of boredom and the threshold of the analytical maximum, right? So it starts to mm-hmm. flirt with my threshold of boredom a little bit. And mm-hmm. then minute 12 happens and I'm just, it, it, it sucks me right back in. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know what to make out of it yet. And I've only listened to it three or four times, but, but I, I don't like, like you said, I don't know if I love it or hate it. <laughs>
I mean, that's an interesting idea, though, like using boredom, you know? Mm. <laughs> I mean, is that is that a legitimate compositional tool? I, we, we usually use it in terms of like how you evaluate your listening experience uh, with our students, because, we, you mm -hmm. know, we work with undergraduates for the most part and and using those two terms to define you know like uh, my analytical maximum is a lot higher than theirs because i listen, I listen to babbitt regularly or semi-regularly <laughs> and um, wakes up every morning <laughs> bless you jamie <laughs> I, someone's got to do it but someone's it's not gonna, gonna be me it. that's <laughs> Um, and, and so many of them come in and, and they are convinced that their listening experience is rich enough and we really need to impress upon them that if their ideal listening experience is somewhere near my threshold of boredom, which is relatively high for most people, sorry, um, but <laughs> then, then they need to expand their horizons. And so that's how we, we typically do it. I haven't written a piece yet where I've been like, yeah, I'm going to push the threshold of boredom because I hate that. So why wouldn't anybody else? <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, but you know what I mean? It's like, is, is the moment when the multiphonics come in so striking because you haven't been given anything beforehand. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of leaning toward that particular camp. And I, I've never actually, uh, how do I want to say this? It's not on the forefront of my mind as I compose, but I do tell all of my students when we're talking about these two thresholds that the most successful pieces are never in any one place for too long. Mm -hmm. And the goal should be to traverse this landscape between these thresholds um, to create something that is interesting. And right. you can, you, if you're in any one of those areas, if you're, if you're hanging out of the threshold of the analytical maximum or the threshold of boredom for too long, it's going to, it's going to end up with the same scenario. The listener is going to check out. Right. Um, if there's too much information coming at them too quickly for too long a period of time, the brain is done. If there's not enough information coming at them for too long of a time, the brain is done. The brain is going to start giving themselves more interesting things to think about than the music that's coming at them, right? That they're receiving. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but the same, same can be said about hanging out right in the midpoint, right? I'm not going to, I'm just yeah. going to play it safe right in the middle. And yeah. that's also uninteresting. It's the, it's the journey between the two thresholds, I think, that gets, get, gets people excited. Yeah. So in your estimation... This piece does that, but it comes dangerously close. Yes. And I think that's probably where most of the excitement lies. If if it's it's riding the edge, right? It's uh -huh. And I think that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I think he that's also toys a lot with there You posted a couple of interviews right before. I did. Um, before we sat down to listen. And he talks or one of the interviewers talked a bit about transcendence. Oh, and that's this idea, like, I don't know about you two, but as a composer, thinking of the idea of transcendence, how to get the audience so entranced in your piece that they forget what's going on uh -huh. around them, that they're completely absorbed in their experience, um, is, is really daunting. And I don't think that it's anything that's taught. That's, I, I feel like that's really hard to do with music. <laughs> you know and like 
there's just because I'm coming off of uh, teaching this uh, class on the New York School of Composers and Artists, I have like I have all this st- stuff still in my head. But um, that was something that artists like Mark Rothko and Barnett Newman and Clifford Still, that's that was something that they were going for was transcendence in in their in their art. Barnett Newman it's a little bit too abstract. <laughs> like <laughs> that's an understatement of the year. Barnett <laughs> Newman is too abstract. We, we we tried to stifle that as best we could. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what I mean? Like, of course, they're all abstract. But even among abstract, like abstractionists, Barnett Newman is still like on the verge of, you know, Frank Stella in the in the later years. And okay, and, you know, it's just like it's it's hard to get that type of emotional response from something mm. that is so. It's like it's almost too clean, you mm. know. But it, whereas, like Mark Rothko. I've stood in front of Mark Rothko's before and I have felt something like mm-hmm. I've been moved. And, and that's, it's actually a pretty common experience with him because there's such depth on the other hand with music. I feel like, I, I don't know. It's just, you can't, you can't sit long enough with something, you know, it's with a Rothko, you, you are controlling your time. Mm-hmm. You know, you are controlling your focus with a piece of music. You are being controlled as a listener. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to think of, of, of pieces where something like that has happened to me at some point, And it's, it's very few and far between. Then again, when you think about transcendence and art, Rothko is the only person I can think of that's ever mm. done that to me. So yeah, I guess it is hard, but maybe can be done. I think, too, uh, we always draw parallels between music and other art forms, um, for better or worse. And and I imagine other disciplines do this as well. But um, the fact that our medium is never the same, even when the blueprints that our pieces are go to musicians of the same ensemble, um, that it's never interpreted exactly the same way. Yeah. And then the argument of, well, since recording technology has existed, recordings are out there, those never change. But then, of course, when you listen to a recording, you're never receiving that in the same way. In fact, when you listen to that recording on a headset versus stereo studio monitors, that's an incredibly different experience. The medium that's you know being transmitted to you is actually different than the painting or the sculpture, something that is physical and fixed. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) we're keeping that in. (laughs) (sighs) Got a sore throat and all stuffed up. It sucks. Oh, no. Anyway, I I feel like I've been sick for just months. China just does that to you in the winter. Anyway. See, um, see, this is another argument for you to have alcohol with you. That's just like. Right? Coat that coat that throat. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you're not an opera singer. <laughs> Our house is incredibly dry too. Like I got off the elliptical last night and it felt like I had sandpaper in my throat. I was uh, just like, give me the water. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the only one that forages. <laughs> what I was what I was gonna say was um 
I mean, I, I mean, it, it, this isn't controversial to say, but yeah, like, uh, listening, being at a performance is always a million times better than, than a recording. Okay. And I was, I was just reminded of this this morning because I was on the way uh, to school. I was listening to the Nerdist uh, podcast and they had, and they had Metallica on and they were talking about the experience of being at a concert. Oh, it's so much better. Yeah. You know, Metallica. And, uh, but yeah, like I've never, I've never had any sort of otherworldly. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, I have had some good experiences while listening to recordings, but it's always been with other people in the room mm-hmm. and while drinking. The the social component, right? Of course. I think yeah. that's a big part of it. Like yeah. listening listening by yourself in a room, it's like eh, 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 whatever, you know? And I'm it's one of it's probably one of the reasons why I don't listen to a lot of music. Like that's not um I should say I don't listen to a lot of contemporary music. Okay. Really? And it's been great. The podcast has kind of forced me to listen again, <laughs> you know? But I don't I don't really do a lot of listening because I it's not, you know, it's it's never as good as I mean I might have stuff on in the background while I'm doing stupid tasks, but um just listening for the sake of listening, it's very hard to do on recordings and by yourself. Yeah, I think um, I think the the lack of the social stimulus really does put a bit of a damper on our art form, which is really interesting because you know the the goal, of course, of many musicians is to get recorded and to have that perfect that perfect sound, whatever that is, and part of the quote-unquote magic, I guess, is lost um, when yeah. it's taken out of its natural environment. I don't know. There is there is one that, while well, we you guys have been talking about this, I've been thinking of. And uh, last year, Sarah Kirkland Snyder came out with a 13-song cycle called The Unremembered. And it was it was written to be recorded i believe um that was that was the first thing that happened to it it is a produced um musical experience and not only have did i have a really moving experience with it but i handed it off to a couple of students who i'm trying to you know break out of their own writing habits and they became you know fanboys about this piece <laughs> and and um I'm really proud of them because because they did they like they broke out of their shells a bit to get um into this music and and one of them presented on it and the other one was just like yeah in the audience for it um which which makes me very happy as a female composer being able to promote other female composers but um I I think you touched on you know it depends on the level the the different performers that mm-hmm get in touch with it, how deep they dig into it. Mm-hmm. If they're not having a transcending experience, then how on earth would the audience get a transcending experience out yeah. of it either? I mean, like, as composers, it is so far out of our hands by the time it gets to the audience frequently, unless we're writing a tape part, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which we're trying to do that with. But... Um, 
but I, I mean, I think you need to to live with it so much as a performer that um, that you can give that to the audience. But we as composers, you know, we can have that in mind, but without the right partnership, it might not ever happen. And it's that that idea of communication too, right? Um, this is what I always tell my theory students when they inevitably ask, "Why the hell are we here?" <laughs> why why does this matter right and and it's it's great because um when you can cite artists like yo-yo ma who say you know 80 percent of their practice time is analysis uh-huh. because usually they're looking at something on the way to a gig right uh, he, he uh, specifically had said you know he, he's studying scores on a plane from point a to point b um and he doesn't have a chance to take out his cello and so all of his a majority of his practice is through analysis and understanding what it is about the music he wants to communicate. Mm-hmm. And then once he figures that out, once an artist or a performer figures that out, then it just, you know, pick up the ax, pick up the instrument and say it through right. this piece of music. Claire wanna... Chase has said the same thing, only hers was the subway. Oh. Because, you know, commute so, times in New York exactly. City. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to get back to something you said about um well the Sarah Kirkland Snyder being written specifically to be recorded. Now, is it performed live as well? The entire cycle will be performed live, I believe in March of this year for the first time. Uh a couple segments okay. of it have been performed. Um but uh this has been a monstrous project. She's been working on it for years and and uh I think the full 13 song cycle will be produced in March for the first time, but because it involves a lot of, um, okay. Words. Um, you guys are going to cut this out, right? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) I adore you too, because it involves a lot of live processing. Um, it uh, has, oh, jeez. <laughs> Those Words three drinks again. are really getting to you, huh? <laughs> they really are. <laughs> um, because it involves so much live processing, they haven't been able to do uh, a full production yet. Let's just end it right there. Okay. So <laughs> My humiliation's complete. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, uh, you kind of made me think of um, a composer we, we've already had on the podcast that um, Amanda Fury, and she had this group of piano pieces that, um, that aren't meant for live performance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just recording because the piece relies so much on her piano the atmosphere when she was recording, the fact that the microphone is like inside the piano, mm. you know, all all of these things. So I'm wondering, is like, is that the same case with the um, with uh, Sarah's piece? Is it does it rely on the medium to to the point where it couldn't be represented in a live context? Because I feel like those pieces do give me something from recording. You know, it's mm-hmm. this, it's like, it's, you're writing for the medium versus documenting with the medium. Yeah. 
Oh, I completely understand. But no, Sarah's piece is capable of being performed live it as is. well. Yeah, okay. she kind of, she wrote it with the idea in mind that it could live in, you know, have one foot in one pond and one in the other where she can have it live performed, but also have this very clean produced sound in the recorded medium. I think it works really well. I, I would love to hear it live because we know that, you know, pop music is is meant to be produced and sometimes right. live performances just completely fall flat eh, depends on the band yeah <laughs> it, it depends on if they're yeah. lip-syncing <laughs> well come on <laughs> come on that's i i actually you know with, with this whole uh mariah carey thing that went down <laughs> i actually don't i don't fault her at all i mean no no it's like it's when you're I, I feel like when you're performing on TV, it's just for the visual spectacle. Oh, yeah. You know, and well, especially in that really well paid pop music. It's it's like that. You know, when we were um, when we were in tech classes as undergrads, they were like they, they taught us that at most of these live shows, there are two computers, one yeah. running the show and one running it at the same time as a backup, just in case the first one fails. Yeah. And most performers are just dancing on stage and holding microphone in front of their face. And I mean, I don't think that's for every, every last one, but I do think that I've experienced more problems at shows where they're not <laughs> lip syncing. Um, yeah. In all fairness, I haven't been to as many as, as, as others. I, I don't know why you're looking at me right now. Because you've been to like none. <laughs> I well, invited I mean, I you to Rod Stewart live. <laughs> I feel like I feel like someone like Justin Timberlake. You know, you've uh, if you okay. I love Justin Timberlake. Um, <laughs> we'll just get that out of the way. Um, but if you but if you look at him, you know. He has a band behind him, but he also has backup singers. And for a lot of his uh, more well-known songs, the backup singers are doing the like heavy lifting for the song, mm. you know, so he can just like, you know, do the little vocal fills here and there, you know, especially in choruses. So I think to get around that problem, you know, and also to prove that it's happening live, you know, hmm. but when I was saying that, you know, sometimes the live performance is, is better than the recorded. I was thinking of people like Radiohead or okay. Bjork, you know, where, yeah. where the recorded, uh, the recorded song exists and then they do a different arrangement for the live setting. Right. Like I've been, I've only been to two Radiohead shows, but I've heard different versions of some of their more popular songs at each show. It's like they do a new arrangement every once in a while for for a really like classic song so but that's but that's something that's kind of interesting to me is in composition are we capable of doing that are we capable of producing a performance you know a like a live performance piece and then reimagine it for a recorded medium where it works better does it have to be a performance piece first, or can you start with the idea that this is going to live in both worlds like Sarah did? Because I think... I don't know. I think maybe. that's maybe one of the next evolutions of, of our, you know, of where our careers could go, or 
compositional words. Words. Thanks. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, I just ruined a beautiful moment. <laughs> you really did. <laughs> no, but I get, I, I, I get what you're saying. Um, but uh, on the on the one hand, and I was, you know, this is this has been a a common theme because it's something I like to talk about because it's something I re- I'm wrestling with myself. Is that how do we how do we make the performance meaningful? Beyond just putting performers on a stage that is lit like a stage should be lit and the audience is viewing it as an audience should be viewing it, you know, how do we how do we make that performance more meaningful? Because some of the performances that I've been to that have actually made an impact are the ones that involve all my senses like a rock show does or like Mm -hmm. a pop show does, you know, and but then when you try to translate that, they don't they don't take those live performances. I mean, yes, there's documentation of like bands, uh, their, their, uh, you know, their live shows. There's documentation of that, but think about it. They make a music video, you know, to represent the represent, to, uh, put it in a visual medium, you know? And it's like, I feel like that's, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't think we should take all the things that, pop pop musicians do but i feel like that's one thing that they do really well is that they use each medium as the medium is meant to be used instead of just documenting in each medium hmm. the thing like the piece that works in one thing they documented in all the other things instead of this works here now i'm going to reimagine it for here now i'm going to reimagine it for here it's uh it's I don't know in the way you're describing it to me it's sort of like um adapting a story for play versus film and you have that you that's the same narrative quality it's the same characters it might even be the same story arc but it does not translate one to one yeah as you go across medium yeah and exactly yeah so that that would be really interesting to consider as I'm considering it now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also realizing we've gotten way off I know, the concerto. I, know. I, I, don't, I don't know. Have we? Because, I mean, Fagerlund, uh, I, don't, I don't know if this is self-proclaimed, but I've seen this in a number of places where it, you know, it says he is a postmodern impressionist. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> right? Right? But, oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just insert I, laugh break here. I, I I just can't take people who uh whatever. I like I said I'm not entirely sure if this is self-proclaimed. Um but but I mean I mean this this label has been attributed to him in one in one way or another. Um and I don't, I don't know. Okay, so a uh, uh, postmodernist we we kind of know is is an amalgam of all of these different types of things, and yeah. is interested in a, a wide perspective of both historical but also future looking ideas. Basically, yeah. anything is open and on the table. Right. And then we put this idea of impressionism in there. Um, so you make everything that you're inspired by kind of fuzzy. 
Yeah, yeah. Or or there is a greater um, sense of of abstraction and color and all those things that are kind of proto-spectral, if you will. But thinking about that in terms Jamie, of why the- why are you stifling this? <laughs> Jamie's been laughing silently for like three minutes. Yeah, it's it happens every time I talk, Rob. <laughs> because it feels like a giggle fit is about it. <laughs> I'm trying to let him talk. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, I, t- no. I totally derailed you, Andrew. No, Sorry. no, hey, it's uh, easy enough to do, as listeners well know um, <clears throat> from previous over drinks and not. Uh, I think uh, in interviews he's given, he's talked about how the music that he writes. Oh my god! She is not gonna stop laughing. <laughs> Sorry. Hashtag giggle fits. Yeah. This is this is what happens when I forget what day it really is. <laughs> and then and then drink to uh, make it that day. Yeah. The um. We're gonna blame Andrew's sister for this one. Wow! What the hell was I saying? I don't know. <laughs> Some, something about impressionism. Something about modern impressionism. How, how it was yeah. all connected to to Lund. Oh, 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 wait. I think I got it. transcendence, I, I hope. No, no, no. Well, okay. maybe. Maybe it transcends something. we were something. still talking about that. I don't know That's what it what transcends. Um, the idea... Oh, there there might be transcendence in this. The idea, though, that you take um, your your craft. He's obviously interested in building upon a tradition that has come before him. But unlike composers who maybe hearken back heavily upon that tradition, when I listen to this concerto, there's certainly counterpoint, there's certainly harmonic progression, there's certainly all of these holdovers from uh, a a canon, if you will, a tradition, uh, a trajectory from the past, but he's realizing this in, I think, from a a 21st century standpoint. Um, So... The but how does how does impressionism come into that? I mean, it, it's like I feel like, well, you're saying whoever is describing him as this, either himself or someone else, is a postmodern impressionist, meaning yes. that impressionist modifies postmodern, but postmodern includes impressionist, right? So, <laughs> so impressionist times two. Can you get an impression of postmodernism? Now I'm really... really You know what I mean? It's like, that's why I have... What the hell does that mean? I mean, I don't know. But the one one thing you just said that that actually really struck me as well about this piece was counterpoint. Yeah. And it made me... And I think in the the shepherd tone middle section, which I'm just going to call it, um, (laughs) in in the shepherd tony section... Um, Tony Shepard section. The Tony Shepard section. I love it. You guys are trying to make me fall apart again, aren't you? <laughs> it's not going to be hard. Well, in the Tony Shepard section, where he's, where it kind of gets a little bit boring, and your mind kind of wanders, and mm-hmm. that's where I was like, oh, this is like a Shepard tone because I wasn't really paying attention to the music anymore. Um, it's very impressionist, right there. Oh, it is. Ah, we found it. <laughs> 
But in that moment, in, in that moment, I began to let my mind wander and thought about the rest of the piece. And counterpoint was a big word that kind of stuck out with this piece. And I was like, huh, I should make my students do more counterpoint. Just like even outside of their classes. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm totally in agreement with you there. Yeah. Not having met your students, I apologize, but uh, or maybe or or maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, Rob, your good. kids suck. <laughs> oh my god! I hope you guys got that. <laughs> okay. Um. Well, I can't. I can't. Oh God! Listen to me. I sound like I'm from Toledo. I can't. Words. I can't talk about this. <laughs> Really? Because it kind of sounds like you're from Syracuse. <laughs> Syracuse? Syracuse. Well, I can always I can always tell that I'm from Toledo, Ohio when I pronounce words like talent. If I pronounce it like I'm from Toledo, it's talent. Yes. yes I work at talent. I, I have talent. Oh good. <laughs> but I can't I can't have talent if um anyway. I I can't um, talk about this piece without saying something that I don't like about it. Fair enough. And there was a moment where he went down to just like, the solo bassoon was still playing, and then it was like piccolo and tuba. Now, to be, to be fair, I think there were, there were a few other things. Maybe ringy-dingy plunky things. <laughs> My, I mean, my my lovable percussion. <laughs> I I think there was probably piano in there. I oh I can't remember to be honest with you. And but, I, but yeah, there were some other things. But the the emphasized sonorities were piccolo and tuba, and especially in mm-hmm. the video, you know, they yes, were yeah. they were focused on those two instruments to tell you, ooh, listen to these right now. But it was like, <laughs> ugh, it was so. F- it was so forced to me. You know, it's like it's like you listen to you you go to um I don't know. I don't I don't want to I am going to get very belligerent here about this and I <laughs> I really don't want to, but there are those composers like, "Oh, I'm going to I'm going to write a piccolo and bassoon duet." Oh, that's so cool. No, it's not. It really isn't. These instruments do not work together. They should never work together. They have no business being in existence in the same place other than for novelty's sake. And I felt like that moment was really, really forced to me in an otherwise really beautiful piece. Well, now, it's interesting, too, because the the piccolo I'm sorry, is doing... You guys, you guys don't have bassoon and, or uh, uh, tuba and piccolo duets, do you? No, no, no not at all. Okay, good. <laughs> that would have been funny. <laughs> um, if I'm remembering correctly, or at least for most of the time, and maybe, maybe I'm just misremembering, but if I'm remembering correctly, the tuba is not in its in its primary range in an orchestral setting. It's a high tuba part, isn't it? That's happening with the piccolo. I didn't feel like it was that high. Well, I, I mean, not ridiculously high, but it was it was very it was in a in an upper tessitura where it, it was the the bassoon was the lower voice. I thought. I feel like you're splitting hairs here to make. No, no, no. I'm 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 not splitting hairs. I'm just, I mean, I mean, my New York is coming out here. Um, I, I mean, I feel like uh, no, I I think. Um, 
I, I'm not defending it necessarily. I'm I'm just saying that um, the the obvious uses of that particular instrument, I I don't think it was necessarily uh, obvious. You know, uh, oh, I'm going to have a piccolo and a tuba duet. The first thing that comes to my mind is really high squeaky tones and farting noises. Right? That's <laughs> that's maybe that's why these. Hashtag overdrinks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, it's like, maybe it's the, you know, if I wasn't watching the video, if I was actually just sitting in the audience, maybe I wouldn't even have this thought. But it's the fact that they were emphasized in the video yeah. that I st- really started to pay attention and figure out that, oh, it's a bassoon and piccolo and tuba trio right here. Wow, that's... <laughs> I think it is the video because I have no idea what moment you guys are talking about. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, so you've you've just been listening to the recording. Then? I've just been listening to the recording. Yeah. All right. So it might be the video driving you guys to that point, but I'm I'm more than happy know. to share my uh, my moment of 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 discontent. And oh, this is you have a moment of discontent. This it is in the winter even. It. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. <laughs> um, it's Can not we- even to do with the piece. It's the title. Dear composers everywhere, we get that it's a big stick. (laughs) (laughs) But there have been enough titles about the big stick. Let's move on. (laughs) Wait, maybe to clarify it for I'm I'm lagging behind. Maybe what what the hell does it mean? What's going on? I mean, I guess I guess I'm I'm referring to the solo and not not the concerto. Oh, oh, what uh, what what's it? Wood wood something? Uh, woodlands, right? Yes, woodlands, (laughs) woodlands, woodwinds, forest Uh trees, reeds, rushes, all these. Yeah, all these things. Yeah, okay. Because I was like mana. I, I feel like mana right, means something right. else. I was, right. Yeah, I was kind of scratching my head. I these was... these two pieces kind of live in the same bubble to me, though, because one is a study piece for the other one, and so and so I can't get through a podcast about the concerto and not say, "Darling composers, <laughs> let's let's move forward from the idea of it's a stick." That's my um, next. That's going to be my next title. It a better very not big be. Stick. <laughs> I'm going to write it for you, and it's just going to be called Jamie's Big Stick. <laughs> <laughs> the unpremiered concerto. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I I I don't think uh, we hit on this yet, but that's actually something that's kind of interesting. That and I'm and I get that you know other people do this, but the the idea of writing a study piece, you know, play this and then play this, you know, mm. oh, that's. that's a- that's interesting that you think of it that way because I think of it, it as the composer getting to know the instrument and what works oh. for it as a study. As a, as a oh. sound repository. And then, oh, okay. because there's a lot of stuff from the solo that didn't make it into the concerto. Some of the brutally high stuff at the end of the solo. I'm talking like ooh, G5. So sitting on top of the treble clef to be to to remind me uh um right of spring that starts on a c5 correct so a perfect fifth above right of spring c 
Yeah, that is how this piece, the solo Woodlands ends, is doing this beautiful lyrical. It ends solo. like that? Yeah. After you've been burning your face off the entire time? Right, right, right. So you've got like these angry beaver moments where he's like, right down the low range, right? (laughs) If I had to laugh out loud, you'd better do it too. (laughs) Angry beaver moment? (laughs) That was a long story. (laughs) Rob. Rob, you've never angered a beaver? (laughs) I guess, well, I'm I'm leaving that alone. Um. (laughs) Um, So he goes from, from all the way from these outbursts in the lowest range of the bassoon to, to these very, very high and lyrical solos and that's how the piece ends and i'm really happy he left it out of the concerto because i think it would limit the number of performances that were possible so yeah oh, i totally. really do think that this is a study in in how to write for the bassoon uh-huh preparing him for writing the concerto and taking what really worked about the solo and leaving what didn't because the uh, i i guess that, you know that that does make a lot more sense because you know you Everyone says that you know the uh, the even numbered symphonies of Beethoven's were his study symphonies in pre- in preparation for the odd numbered symphonies and mm. maybe not six but um, but anyway um, <laughs> like four was a study for five and eight was a study for nine and blah 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 but um, I I kind of took it in the way that see I have a I have a piece for. <laughs> Jesus, Jamie. Um, <laughs> I took it in the way that I have a I have a percussion quint. Actually, the the piece that was premiered on the the Bowling Green Festival where I met you guys. Um, that piece, it's all based on a solo. That like it's it, it's like a one minute etude. It's like all the material. If you can play this solo, you can play everything in that piece. Interesting. So, so it's like play this etude and then learn the quint, learn the quintet. You know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. So, and that that etude has never seen the light of day. It's not meant to be performed. It's just like right. it's literally a study for the performers because. Huh. The music, the the music in the quintet is so rhythmically. Mm, I mean, it's rhythmically challenging. You know, it's a lot of it's a lot of fives and sevens, and you know, it's it's just if you can play this stuff, you will you will have no problem with the quintet because if you just give that to quint like a percussion ensemble and just say here do this, they're going to spend a lot of time woodshedding, as opposed to here i'm gonna give you this two or three months in advance go play this for a while and then let's tackle the quintet right hmm. i, I so, actually think the concerto might be this this particular pair though the concerto might be easier because uh of the high section being left out at the end yeah well i would assume so lower i yeah. think some of the material is still in there but without the score i can't really tell yet Okay, well, uh, I dug the ending. I thought the ending was good. 
It's a hey, nice little you know, rah, 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 thing. As as long as the beginning and the end are good, doesn't really matter what you do in the middle, right? Tony, Tony Shepard would disagree. <laughs> All right, final final thoughts. Yep. All right, there yeah, it is. Pretty, yeah, pretty, yeah, pretty pretty much, I think. <laughs> No, I thought I I I thought it was uh okay. We've already covered the fact that I don't I don't really like solos. I'm not a huge fan of concertos to begin with because of their relationship to the solo and the the fact that it's like, ooh, look at me. You know, mm-hmm. that thing. I wondered um, why when when I was like, yeah, let's do this piece, you were like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> whatever (laughs) um however i felt like this was i liked it i i I liked it quite a bit actually so yeah it was pretty cool yeah this is actually the first piece of his that i've gotten to know and i do know that i mean he has several concertos uh to his repertoire and and one of them he has a clarinet concerto from i think 2000 i think he finished it in 2004 or 5 and it was performed in 06 out of something along those lines um you know maybe 10 years old at this point um but uh i think i'm i'm really interested in digging into more of his music and see what's out there and what Mm -hmm. what it all is i hear i've heard fragments of the clarinet concerto and and i think there's a few things that i can already know i can already tell he likes there are certain sounds he really likes Mm -hmm. like um the the rapid articulation of a of a single pitch right you know that that has never been a thing i have been interested in myself as i as i write i always try to avoid re-articulating a given pitch um Mm -hmm. I, I don't like repeated notes in that way, but there's, there's, they're so fast in his interpretation of that particular idea and gesture. And it, there's so much um, intensity mm-hmm. and rebound effects from, from doing these types of things. I don't know. It, it might be interesting to, to hear how they're used in other contexts. That that's the clarinet concerto specifically or. Yeah. Yeah. And well, okay. there's a lot of that rapid tonguing in the bassoon concerto too. There was, I mean, he kind of he kind of opens the way that everyone opens, you know. You know, it's like, all right, yeah, we we know there, there's a note. Good job. I, I think I think Rob should just sing the concerto. I, I don't think we need that. <laughs> I can, I, but I can cover the angry beaver parts. <laughs> 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 hashtag um, Tony Shepard, hashtag Angry Beaver, <laughs> hashtag I don't know. <laughs> oh well, I really I, final thoughts from me are that uh, you know I think this uh, this particular piece unfolds really well for me. There yeah. are not that many bassoon concertos that period. can keep a well period, and there's yeah. not that many with extended techniques that. The techniques are actually integral to what happens in the rest of, yeah. of the work. But uh, there aren't that many concertos where a bassoonist can take it into a competition and potentially win 
against the Czech Violin Concerto or Bartok's third piano piano concerto. Or or the Rachmaninoff Concerti. Yeah, yeah, um, we don't get to be showy all that often. And and I'm hoping that this piece can turn that table just a smidge. (laughs) Just a little bit and open the door. But that is... That is my final thought, and please cut out the. That is that is my final thought. I don't know. It, 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 there's something very rhythmic, <laughs> and something very unique about that, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the opening. That is that is that is that is that is my. That is that is that is that is that is my my my. That is that is that is my final thought. Okay. <laughs> Well, thanks, guys. Thank, thank, <laughs> thank you. I think. Thank you, <laughs> thank you, alcohol for this one. <laughs> I hoped it's what you wanted when you thought of this idea. <laughs> exactly what I wanted. <laughs> thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website www.adjectivenewmusic.com. <laughs>